You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So I'll open the Word of the Lord to Scripture passages we will read this afternoon. In the first place, Genesis chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it, and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark, and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth, will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now we go to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 3, where we'll read verses 1 through 20. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. 
But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This afternoon we continue our series of sermons on the Psalms. And we come to Psalm 14 as our text. For the director of music of David, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Beloved congregation of Christ, we are a church of atheists. It's true. Now you're probably thinking this pastor has really gone over the edge when he says something like that. But before you go and write off the next half hour, let me explain how that is. We often think of atheism in terms of people who deny the existence of God, usually with their words and usually with some kind of intellectual reason to support their denial. We could get a little bit more sophisticated and we can talk about atheists as people who believe that the existence of God is 
unproven. And there too, we're still safe. We're not anywhere near those people. So how can I say that we're a church of atheists and then also include myself with that? After all, didn't we come here this afternoon to worship God? To hear Him speak? If that's the case, then surely we believe He exists. How can we be a church of atheists? Loved ones, atheism is more than a denial of God with our words. It can also be a denial of God with our lives, with our thoughts, deeds, and words. Atheism can also be a denial of God with what we do and with what we leave undone. Each time we sin, we deny God and His claims over our lives, effectively denying His existence. All of us still have the remnants of the old nature, and we have to admit that that old nature, it stinks with the rot of atheism. What we see in our lives is what we call practical atheism. It's not the intellectual atheism that has all sorts of arguments to refute Christian claims. It's a practical atheism which makes all sorts of rationalizations to excuse a life which fails to meet God's standards. This sort of atheism infects even Christians. And it's this sort of atheism that is revealed by God to be foolishness here in our text in Psalm 14 this afternoon. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first thing we need to understand is that the word fool here is not an insult. It's an objective description of a certain kind of person. In the Old Testament wisdom literature, and this is also considered by many to be a wisdom psalm, in the Old Testament wisdom literature, a fool is someone who acts foolishly, you know, in a moral sense. For instance, the foolish are those who reproach the righteous, give them a hard time. The foolish are those who blaspheme God. Strikingly, the foolish are also usually part of God's covenant people. They know better. So David makes this disturbing observation that a certain kind of person, a fool, makes a claim that there is no God. Notice that this claim is made in his heart. In other words, he doesn't necessarily say it out loud probably wouldn't be prudent to say such things out loud in Israel. You can imagine what would happen if all of us were to say out loud what we were really thinking in our hearts last week when we did this, or we said that, or we thought that. All our good appearances would be gone. We'd be revealed for the sinners that we really are. And so it is here too. The fool only makes his atheistic claims in his heart because to do it otherwise would put himself at risk. It would make him vulnerable. It would be dangerous. And it's out of the heart 
at the lifestyle emerges. The Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 15:19, "For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies." Then it only makes sense that David proceeds from what's going on in the heart, what the fool is saying there, to what's going on in the life of the fool. Foolish people, he says, have corrupted themselves, and they do vile, rotten things. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The psalmist observes about the foolish people that there are no good works among them. This only serves to emphasize that this practical atheism is not an intellectual problem, but a moral one. Mankind's problem is not a lack of information, but a a twisted, degenerate heart that results in reprehensible behavior. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah goes on to say that this condition of the heart, it incurs God's judgment. Therefore, our greatest need is a Savior. We don't need a therapist or a life coach or a manager. We need one who can save us from our hearts. And the the wrath of God that these black hearts incur. This disturbing observation of David is meant to drive us to find that Savior in Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that verse 1 is a description of my life and yours. Now, we don't, we don't deny God with our words. But more often than we care to admit, we're like the folks described in Titus 1.16. We profess to know God, but we deny Him with what we do. We need a Savior who can deliver us from the curse of sin, who can make us right with God. We also need a Savior who can deliver us from the power of sin, who can transform and sanctify our lives so that the lies of practical atheism, they lose their allure, and so that the old nature dies evermore. That's the kind of Savior we need. And praise God that we do have such a Savior in Jesus Christ. Well, verse verse 2, we move on from the psalmist's observation to God's evaluation. David says that Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sons of men. Many commentators have rightly pointed out that these words are strongly reminiscent of Genesis 6 especially verse 12, where we're told that God looked down upon the earth. That's what it says literally in the Hebrew. And He found that mankind was corrupt. Almost the exact same words are used here in Psalm 14. And while the same words, the exact same words are not used, the same idea is also there in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. In both instances, with the the flood in the days of Noah and with the Tower of Babel, what followed was judgment. When Yahweh looks down from heaven, the results are usually not good, historically speaking. 
And so it is here in Psalm 14. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sons of men. And notice that the psalm has now gone as broad and as universal as possible. We're no longer dealing with a fool or fools, probably among the covenant people, but now we're dealing with all mankind. Yahweh looks down on everybody to see if there are any who show insight. He looks to see if there are any who seek God. What does he find? All of mankind has turned aside. In other words, they haven't turned back to Yahweh. They haven't repented, but they have turned aside or they have turned away. And the language here is interesting because it's so broad and universal. And David even includes himself here. Even though David was described as the man after God's own heart. Even though we have so much evidence in the Bible that David often did repent. We have many psalms of penitence. Despite all that, here he gives God's evaluation of all mankind and he includes himself. Apart from grace, everybody is in a dangerous spot, in danger of God's judgment, just like mankind was in the days of Noah. And God's evaluation confirms David's observation in verse 1 that there is no one who does good. In fact, Yahweh goes even further. He adds, there is not even one. When it says this in verse 3, the same words are used as in verse 1, and the conclusion is inevitable. Everybody is a fool. We're all fools. Everybody is inclined to practical atheism. There is not even one person who does good. Hold on, someone will say. This is, this is extreme. Gone way too far. Because we wouldn't have to look very far and, and to look and find people in our community who are doing good. And, and many of them are not believers. So is this really true? There is no one who does good, not even one? Now there's a, a video on the internet of the author and preacher John Piper. The video, you can Google it if you want to find it for yourself. The video is entitled, John Piper is Bad. And it's some words of John Piper mixed in with a well-known pop song from the 1980s. Let you guess what the song is. Piper was speaking about the doctrine that we call total depravity. The video is meant to argue the point. And one of the comments under the video, because people can leave comments under the video, and one of the comments under the video, John Piper is bad, reads, and I quote, the doctrine of total depravity is stupid. Saying a human cannot do a righteous act without the Spirit of Christ in them is not only theologically bankrupt, it's also intellectually bankrupt. A mother in a jungle who has no knowledge of Christ in the Scriptures, who sacrifices her life to save her child, has committed a righteous act. That's the end of the quote. 
And truth be told, that's the way many people react when they first hear about the doctrine of total depravity. How do we respond? Well, brothers and sisters, our response has to focus on the difference between the way God evaluates and the way man evaluates. God has high standards of righteousness and goodness and holiness that are intricately tied up with His character as a righteous, good, and holy God. The Bible is clear that there is nothing we can do to meet those high standards. Man judges differently than God. Man looks around and he can see his fellow man, also those who are unbelievers, doing good. Doing what we can call civic good. Through God's restraining power, people are not as bad as they possibly could be. And so we can say that there is a lot of civic good done in the world. But none of it is regarded as righteous or good in God's eyes, apart from the sanctifying power of His Holy Spirit. All of it is stained with sin. So Psalm 14.3 is correct as far as God is concerned. There is no one who does good, not even one. Fallen humanity, said Charles Spurgeon, is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a hell without a bottom. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes these words from Psalm 14 into what he says in Romans 3, where he's trying to argue for the point that both Jews and Gentiles are under the curse of sin. And the way Paul uses these words confirm that they have a universal application. These words, they describe all of us. And we can take our cue further from Paul and say that these words, they point us to the Redeemer. Among the sons of men, there was one who did good. None of the negative things described in Psalm 14 apply to Jesus Christ. This psalm presents us with the complete opposite of the earthly ministry and life of Christ. There was a man who was righteous, whose deeds were pure, who always did good. He never turned aside from God. And yet at the same time, he never had to turn back to God. He never had to repent. He understood. He sought God. He was perfectly obedient. And He was that Savior that Paul preached. And He's the same Savior preached today. And the need for this Savior is further accentuated in verse 4 where we read more about the ways of unbelief. At this point, the psalm moves to consider specifically those who are not believing in God and following Him, the evildoers. Evildoers never learn. Literally, they have no knowledge. And that means more than just knowing in an intellectual sense, knowing information. It means that they have rebelliously rejected any meaningful, 
healthy relationship with God. Not only with God on high. It also extends to relationships with people on earth. Because they continually oppress. They destroy people around them just as naturally as though they were eating a sandwich. As though they were eating bread, says the psalm. And what's more, they don't pray. They don't call on Yahweh with their words. Why should they? When they have rejected a relationship with Him. And so obviously, where there is no prayer, there is no new life. Where there is no prayer, a healthy relationship with God is absent. Note that very carefully, loved ones. And this depravity not only affects others, not only affects the people who are oppressed by it, it also affects those who are depraved. At the beginning of verse 5 we read, There they are, overwhelmed with dread. Romans 1.32 tells us that all mankind knows the righteous judgment of God that is to come. And Romans 1.18 tells us that man in unbelief suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That means that he pushes it down into his consciousness. And he tries to deny it. He tries to avoid it. But Psalm 14.5 says they can't. Their depravity causes them fear and anxiety. You see where this practical atheism, if it's consistently followed to its logical end, you see where it will take you? They know that something isn't right, but they can't. And they won't do anything about it. Some unbelievers learn to cope with this dread and suppress it through any number of different means. So it may not always be evident or acknowledged. But God's Word says that it is there at some level. So when we speak with unbelievers, we can keep this in mind. We can gently probe. Gently probe. And ask questions that may be used by God to bring these suppressed truths to the surface. And then we may also have the opportunity to be instruments so that God can wipe away that dread with the blood of Jesus. And while evildoers, those who consistently follow the path of practical atheism to its logical end, while they are overwhelmed with dread, there are also the righteous. God is in their midst. God is with those who believe Him and believe His promises for salvation in Jesus Christ, whether that was in the Old Testament or New Testament. The righteous are those who are declared righteous by God, who have a healthy, meaningful relationship with God, and whose lives are being shaped by God. God is with them, working for them and in them. The righteous will have the opposite of the great fear and anxiety experienced by unbelievers, the evildoers. 
the righteous will have peace, contentment, and quietude. The righteous are also described as the poor in verse 6. Now when we hear that word poor, we often right away think of homeless people wandering the streets or perhaps people living below the poverty line, people who have to go to the food bank. But that's not the way the Bible necessarily uses that word. For instance, here the poor are not those who are not rich, but rather those who are exploited, those who are abused, manipulated, and oppressed by the wicked and the violent. They don't necessarily lack in money. They're not necessarily starving. They're people who in some way are in deep need. They are in deep difficulty. And they humbly seek help from Yahweh. And when they do, Yahweh is their refuge. Humanly speaking, the poor are insecure and they're unable to cope in the face of calamity. So they turn to Yahweh and they find security and they find someone who can harbor them and preserve them in the face of distress. In other passages, we often find this word refuge used in combination with other words like rock, strength, defense, and fortress. As I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but think of the fortress of Masada. In fact, I pulled a book off my shelf about this incredible fortress. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a a natural rock fortress on the shores of the Dead Sea. It was the place to which the, the Jews fled when Jerusalem was sacked in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It was the the place of the the last stand of the Jews. There was a collection of them huddled on top of this rock where Herod had once had his palace. Well, Masada is a formidable fortress. It is a place where you would want to be if you had somebody chasing after you. But fortunately, the Jews didn't reckon with the ingenuity and creativity of the Romans. The Romans were in it for the long haul. And they built a ramp of rocks and dirt leading up to the top of this fortress. And eventually, Masada was breached and it was sacked. And all the Jews there too were also killed. Well, Yahweh is not a fortress or a refuge that can be breached or sacked like Masada. Yahweh is the strong place, the indomitable strong place to which the poor in spirit can flee for help and safety. And they will be safe there. He is our refuge. Your safe place. Now it needs to be added that when the Bible teaches us that Yahweh is a refuge, it doesn't guarantee that we will be unaffected by calamity and crises in this life. Most of us, I think, have enough life experience to know better We've trusted in God. We've believed that He is our safe place. Yet what happens? Our loved ones still get sick. We get sick. Our friends and family die. We still have problems in our relationships. 
hardships of various sorts are still there. Yet because of Christ, God gives us the hope that all these things in this life will somehow be turned for our good. Because of Christ, God gives us the hope that in the hereafter we will all live under the canopy of God's glorious presence where we will be sheltered and we will be protected forever. Not only from spiritual harm, but also from physical. And that hope is captured in the last verse of the psalm. Here we have a a prayer of God's people calling out to Him because they desperately need His salvation. The earnest wish is that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And then we have to ask, well, why Zion? Well, Zion was where the presence of God dwelt in the days of David, at least after the tabernacle had been brought there. God was there in a special way, in the Holy of Holies. David's plea is that salvation would come not from a physical mountain, not from the rocks that make up this mountain, but from God. That God would deliver His people not only from oppressive unbelievers, but also from unbelief itself. From the ravages of practical atheism. David cries out for salvation from the curse and power of sin in the lives of God's people. In the days of David and and still in our day, we live under the shadow of this sinful age. The shadow can be compared to a sort of captivity. When verse 7 reads, when the the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, we can also translate that more literally as when Yahweh restores His people from captivity. This release, this freedom, is what David expected God to do in the future. God began to fulfill that with the incarnation of Christ and His earthly ministry some 2,000 years ago. The beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke 3, we read that when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth early in his ministry, he took one of the scrolls and he began reading. And what he read was Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He told the people that he had come to proclaim freedom to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And indeed, he did that during his time on earth. But there's more to come. We look forward to the day when Christ will make us completely free of all the effects of sin and death in this age. Read the last chapters of the Bible, we see... God portrayed as the ultimate and eternal refuge of His people. And so the prayer of David here in Psalm 14 also has to be our constant prayer today as we look for, as we long for and pray for the return of our Savior. And when that return happens, God's people will truly rejoice and be glad. There'll be no more mourning or sadness or tears. Our hearts will leap for joy endlessly. Today, already, we can begin to do that. Because already now, we do know the beginnings of this freedom. Because of Christ, sin no longer has a death grip on us. 
we can rejoice and we can be glad today already, even as we look for the fullness of joy on Redemption's Day. Brothers and sisters, the point of this psalm is to drive home to God's people the ugliness and the foolishness of unbelief. And on the flip side, the Holy Spirit wants to make faith and life with God in Christ attractive to us. Where we say, yes, that's what I want. And this psalm begins with practical atheism among God's people, but then extended to the corruption of all mankind and then specifically to the wicked over against God's faithful ones. And the text drives us to ask, where are we? Certainly all of us still have the remnants of our old nature. And so we still experience total depravity in our lives. And we also know that practical atheism is a reality because all of us sin. And each time we do sin, we deny God and His claims over us, His right to rule us. But what we do with that revelation determines whether we will be among the evildoers who follow the consistent path, the logical end of practical atheism. Those people in verses 4-6 to six who go from bad to worse or whether we're among the righteous, the poor in spirit who humbly go to God looking to Him for refuge and deliverance. See, unbelief has consequences. And there are also the remnants of unbelief in each one of us. And when we recognize that, our eyes are open to that, the consequences must be humility and repentance. Calling on Yahweh. Remember, loved ones, that prayer is something the evildoers won't do. So pray. And find refuge in Him. Pray and say, Oh Lord, I hate all the evidences of practical atheism in my life. Forgive me for it. I want to more and more live out of Christ. I'm thankful for my Savior and for His work. I want to fight against my sin. Help my unbelief. Help me and save me. And when we pray in that way, God will answer. And with His Spirit, He will strengthen our wills He will make them come alive evermore so that we increasingly want to do what is good in His eyes, so that we will have understanding and we will more and more seek after Him. He will make us hunger and thirst for Him and for His Word. With His Holy Spirit, He will shape us into people who don't oppress, who don't exploit, who don't manipulate others. In other words, He will more and more conform us to the image of Christ, our Savior. We began by noting that we're a church of atheists. That's still true. But we can't leave it at that. There's more to say. We're also a church of people who are united to Christ by faith. People who are being changed. We are both sinners and saints in this age. And that's a tension that we have to live with in this age. 
Though as we make progress in sanctification, the tension does begin to let up. But it will only finally be resolved in the hereafter when we will be completely holy. We will be completely like Christ. Till then, God's Word encourages us to look for the salvation of His people and to pray for it earnestly. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we rejoice at the announcement of Christ our Savior that He came to bring liberty and freedom. We're glad for His work here on earth and His ongoing work in heaven. Father, we look for the completion of that work. We do earnestly pray for the full salvation of Your people to come from Your presence. We humbly ask that our Lord Jesus would come quickly to bring the fullness of our redemption. As we wait for that day, help us to continually look to You as our refuge. Help us with Your Spirit to continually call on You. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ, our Redeemer. Father, please give us more grace so that we hate our sin with deeper passion. So that if we deny You with our lives, we truly repent and we seek Your forgiveness. And so, Father, we do that right now too. We confess to You the practical atheism of our lives, our total depravity, our stubborn love affair with sin. Have mercy and forgive us because of the perfect obedience and suffering of Jesus our Lord. Help us to go on from here today intent on being those who do what's good in Your eyes, who call on You constantly, who don't oppress, exploit, and manipulate our neighbors. Help us to be filled with compassion and love for those who are still walking in darkness, who are dead in sins and trespasses. We pray that You would give us opportunities to speak with them so that they can be saved. Father, please grant us Your Spirit in richer measures so that we would more and more be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray all this for the glory of Your name in the church and the world and in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.